All right, David, you asked the question basically that you don't know what to do. Uh -huh. And uh, let us put it this way. All right. <clears throat> I know on a, uh, a, I've, I've seen a Reddit theme where the guy says that uh, he's practiced meditation for 50 years and that he knows the difference between deep meditation and the beginner's meditation. So he's talking about the, um, uh, I guess, the pride of practicing meditation for 50 years and that he was doing that in response to a remark that someone made that there's really only one thing to do for the very beginner and for the advanced student. There's still only one real thing to do. And that is, is to purify the mind or to clean out the mind. That's really the only thing that um, is to be done. That's the primary skill. But there is a lot of secondary skills that we need. And those secondary skills wind up being the method then. When we combine this set of skills together, we come up with a complete package or a method. I use the word method intentionally because uh, method means uh, like, for instance, how do you open the door? The method is you take the key, you put it in, you turn the lock, you turn the knob and you open the door, right? Key insertion, turn, turn, open. You right. got that? All right. Yeah, so simple. that's simple. Exactly. That's all there is to it. And so we need that set of skills. One is to get the key. The other one is to put the key in. The other one is to turn the lock. And the other one is to open the door. This is the method. Except that in the translation out of uh, the Pali into English, it gets translated not into the word method, but into the word path. With the idea that this year you get a key, and next year you think about putting it in a lock, and the year after that, you do the turning. Yeah. And you got to be on the path. All right. right. Slowly, slowly, step after step. And so uh, this is where the Eightfold Noble Path becomes confusing because people think of it as a path in the sense of a, a path like an animal trail right. or an Indian trail or a freeway or a highway or something like that that has to do to get from here to there over time and distance. Right. That's what a path is for. But the word path can also mean a, uh, another thing in the sense of uh, 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 you've heard um, the word way and also the word via which is Italian and Latin and whatnot like that. And so you could think of a road as a way, like the high way. Right. A high road. Okay. But we also use the word way in the sense of a method. Oh, well, this is the way you open a door. Right. Okay. So the, the question is, are we going to be able to take this long-term structure idea out of it 
and recognize that there really is all of these little skills just have to be done right now. And that now is right now for the absolute very beginner or whether somebody's had 70 years of meditation experience is to still uh, thing to do is to clear out the mind. Okay. Okay. Hopefully after 70 years of meditation practice, somebody's developed those skills to where what? the beginner is, it doesn't have so many skills. So basically then what the, the, the real practice is, is the practice of skill development. Okay. Okay. But every time that you're doing it, it's doing it and that you're doing it and practicing that skill, which means that at another time you can count on the skill practice that you put in here will now bring you to a higher skill level. Right. And we can see longer. that in Right. We can see that in learning how to read. We can see that in uh, playing a musical instrument. Right. Uh, in all kinds of things. It's that way here, too. So we actually have a few skills to be developed. And the first skill to be developed is one's right view, to know the difference between right view and wrong view. And as that skill develops, it gets more noble, higher class, and, and with the understanding of what uh, is what. In other words, we begin to see things more clearly because we've been practicing looking at things to see them more clearly. I got you. And so, okay, so the second skill is sati. And the sati is to wake up, to remember, to, to look, to apply this new way of looking. The noble view is to keep investigating, keep looking. That unlike an uh, ordinary society, most people look for something because they're trying to find a solution. Right. Or they're trying to build a concept or they're trying to come to a conclusion. Right. Right. Well, what concludes in this moment may not be what concludes in the next moment, even though we've come to a conclusion this in this moment, we still need to investigate the next moment. Of course, because right? it's but all most now. people. Once they come to a conclusion, they stop looking. I, I already know all of that, been there, done that, and I don't have to look at it anymore. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, there's always more to find. So mm -hmm. that's why I'm here. <laughs> to wake up and to keep looking, okay? The third skill is the skill of one's right effort. And what is one's right effort is the right effort to... Uh, see wrong view as wrong view coming to conclusions. Okay. And to see right view as right view, which means to keep looking. One is one's right effort then is to not just change the view from wrong view to right view, but also it is to change this thought in this moment from right thought, from wrong thought or unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought. This is the primary skill, in fact, that if we can keep changing the mind because we already know enough of right view to distinguish often between what is right thought and what is unwholesome thought. Right. But as the skills develop, 
we'll be able to discern that better so that some things that we used to think were wrong view were in fact right view. But it's also the uh, vice versa. Things that we used to think that was uh, right is actually wrong. But we're investigating things now. An example of that would be junk thoughts. Most people think that it's okay just to have a bunch of junk thoughts in the mind because junk thoughts are a whole lot better than unwholesome thoughts. And yet junk thoughts is nothing but restlessness, just jumping around. There's a lot of that here. Okay. Yeah, I, so I understand. We, and so as we begin to investigate more and more, we begin to discern more and more so that we can refine this judgment about what is wholesome thought and what is unwholesome thought. And so one's right effort is to change unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Now, this is directly into the suttas. Uh, no implications about it. However, I will add an additional one, and that is the additional one that is implied through the practice of Anapanasati, the way that it's stated, is then would be one's right effort also besides changing the content of the mind from something unwholesome to wholesome would be also changing the breathing from something unwholesome to something wholesome in the sense that the ordinary breathing that people have is a shallow breathing based upon conservation and that we're okay. going to change that into breathing that is rich you mean like were, the belly? Well, like we're going belly. to actually start breathing deeply in the sense of oxygenating the body as well as cleaning the body. Okay. Why? Because if you're breathing, uh, exhaling, and you're breathing it in a shallow way, then most of the air that's in the lungs stays in the lungs on that out breath. But if we start breathing in and out longer, then that out-breath is going to be more of an, uh, an expansive, uh, let us say, trash-taking out. Because basically what we're looking at is we're going to be lowering the pH level of the blood. Because carbonic acid is carbon dioxide and water, and you know the blood's got a lot of water in it. You also know that it's got carbon dioxide, okay? So if we can get the carbon dioxide out of the blood and get a lot of oxygen in the blood, then we're going to be vibrantly alive, tingling alive, healthy, unpolluted in the body itself. This is why the breathing is said in the suttas, he understands or he knows that this is a long in-breath. And then the next sentence is, is that he understands or knows, this is point of sati, in fact, is mindfulness, or the sati. I'm mindful that this is going to be a long out-breath. I'm intentionally making it a long out-breath. In fact, I like the word sigh. <laughs> <sighs> because so a sigh is a complete release. Are you suggesting this should be done all the time? I'm um, suggesting that it can be done when you remember to do it and take the right effort to do it. There's all the time stuff is a um, uh, uh, an unwholesome thought. Gotcha. Fair enough. Future oriented. Okay. And it, and it has the implication. Look how much work I've got to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it does. 
instead of this breath is marvelous. Right, right now. Right now, this breath. I remember this breath. So this is one's right effort. Okay. The next point of the Eightfold Noble Path I'll introduce now, and um, and that is in the Pali, it is known as Sama Sankata, and that that is translated in various ways. One way to translate it correctly is right thought. Another way to translate it incorrectly is right intention. Why? Because intention has to do with wanting something you don't have. Right. Okay. But the best translation of all is right attitude. Right attitude. Right? Okay. And what is that? It's the attitude uh, that we have will actually determine what kind of thoughts we have. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so if we have the attitude of a victim, what do you mean I've got to take a deep breath all the time? Versus the lion, which is, I like this breath. Right, this feels good. This feels good. This breath is marvelous. And if we don't have that attitude that the breath is marvelous, there's an easy way to look at it this way. And that is, stop breathing for three minutes. <laughs> don't probably breathe pass, until you up. recognize that, hey, this next in-breath is going to be really nice. I'm going to really like this one. Right. And then you bring, wait a minute, that's true of every one of them. Every breath is a proof positive I'm still alive. I'm still here. Right. Because the last breath that we take is an out breath. They call it expire. Yeah, they do. Yeah. When we expire. The last breath is always an out breath. And then don't take another in breath. So taking that in breath should be marvelous because it's going to keep you alive. If you don't take that next in breath in this moment, you're going to die. Now, isn't that marvelous, that breath? Now, when we look at it from that perspective. Yeah, it is. Okay. And, and, and going back to what we were talking about before we turned the video recorder on, I wanted to touch on that. And this is a, uh, an interesting point of time to do it. A lot about what the Buddha is teaching has to do with becoming fearless. That we begin to manage these feelings. If we can learn to manage and control the breath, we can learn to manage and control the mind. If we learn and manage, control the breath and the mind, we can learn to control the feelings so that we are no longer driven by the feelings, the feelings of fear, anger, lust, um, uh, sadness, grief. These are, they call them emotions. And you can hear the word motion in there. They move people. They're a force. They drive us. And they drive us because we're out of control with them. Or if we can befriend them, take control of them, harness their energy, and put them to work. Right. Okay. And so that way we become friends with our, our, our fear. That in fact our fear has kept us alive. 
Many, many times teenagers would have been dead unless they got afraid of what they were about to do. And then they'd have a second thought. Wait a minute. I don't want to do that. That's yeah. dangerous. And that's kept them alive. And there's a whole lot of people that are dead meat now because they didn't recognize the fear. Right. Fear, therefore, has a value. It's got a use. The problem with it is, is that it's often premature or what is called a... Um, false positive right what does that mean that means that fear arises in circumstances where it's inappropriate for fear to arise yeah i get that i do i have that happen all the time i have that happen with you when i'm trying to like figure out if i should call you or message you or or what like i'm just saying I, i get it yeah okay so um, what uh, is part of the Anapanasati practice is that if we can come up to that attitude of being a lion, then that also has the attitude that I can handle this present moment. Right. And that in the sutta, it's expressed this way, that um, when the student says, that no matter how obstructed the mind becomes, or no matter how obstructed or what kind of hindrances, or how often they occur, or how, what strength they have, the meditator knows that he can throw that stuff out, clean out his mind, take a deep breath, and come back to this present moment. Right. Now, that's a knowledge. That means that that's an attitude change. Right. And, and that's, that's, based- what, that's what I've heard of, but I didn't know if it actually existed. Um, it's the first step of the nobility. This is the first step. When you have the right attitude that you can handle this moment, the Buddha says that that's the first knowledge that is noble, super mundane, a factor of the path, and not held by ordinary people. Because most ordinary people who are in the victim's position say, well, things do come along that I can't handle. Things happen. Right. And I should be prepared. I got to go work because if I don't work and accumulate money, then there'll come a day that I'm hungry and I can't handle that. Right. But if you have the idea that, yeah, some days I'm going to be hungry, I can handle that, then I don't have to work. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so that adds... Is what we're looking at. That change of attitude to a can do attitude is a noble change. It's the first step in the path to nobility, to leave the world, which means to, to, to leave our dependence on the world. That I am not a victim to the world. I don't depend upon the world. I don't expect the world to take care of me because look what kind of job has done so far. <laughs> if I wake up to see how the world has taken care of me, I'll say, thank you very much, Daddy. I don't need your care anymore. I can do this myself all by myself. Thank you very much. And that's the winner's attitude, you see. Right. The winner's attitude is, I can do this. I can handle this. This also comes to the point of death. This is why in Buddhism it's very good to start to contemplating death. In fact, you can do that with that in-breath. If I don't take this in breath, I'm going to die. Am I ready to do that, too? Because that's going to happen. There's going to come a day when you better be ready for that, because it's going to happen. Well, I talked to that 
therapist that I had mentioned before this video started about that. And cause I've thought a lot about death and, um, and he is in a position where he's facing down his, his death. Um, you are too. You just don't know it yet. Well, we all, but it's right in front of you. Yeah, yeah but he's—he's. He's, it's more real for him than it is for me right now. Like right. So in other words, something got through to him that now he sees death right in front of him. When you see death right in front of you, you might do it years before it actually bites you. But death is right here for every one of us. It is one breath away. Right. It is one breath away. If you don't take that one next breath, you're going to die. When we talked about it, what I told him was, I want to go into it with eyes open. I want to, I want to be present for my death. And so this, as the old man, if it's bothering him now, I mean, he's 80-something. He ought to have gotten enough out of life already. He can look death in the face and say, hey, buddy, where you been? I've been waiting on you. I'm tired of this old world. But no, he's still clinging to life. Right. He's afraid. There's still fear left in there. That means basically that he hasn't, as a psychologist, all these years actually confronted death and be ready to die. Because if, in fact, you are ready to die, then that means that you are fearless. If you're not ready to die, then you're afraid of death. But if you're ready to die any moment, then you can live very well this moment right because you can be free of being dead the next yeah i mean talk about being fearless because mm -hmm. the worst exactly. thing that can happen to you is to die so i've heard that thing. before in fact that was about the next thing i was going to say so you're a step ahead of me already <laughs> right so if death's the worst thing that can happen and you're not afraid of that then why be afraid of anything? We need to tell ourselves that over and over and over again, because things will happen and we'll become afraid. We'll have business to do. Oh, I've got to go do that business. If I don't get that business done, something bad will happen. And so that whole, that whole idea of something bad will happen is the whole idea of impending doom. That's why we have the quality of the fear. This fear, by the way, is a mechanism that we're born with. It's built into the DNA, and it is called by uh, some scientists as the self-preservation instinct. Right. I've heard okay. of that. Right. The self-preservation instinct means that which is inside of us is trying to keep the mechanism, the human organism, alive and operating. Without that survival mechanism, all them teenagers would have been dead long before they were teenagers. In fact, they wouldn't have ever been bored. Uh, humanity would have been wiped out centuries ago. Right. If, if everybody was absolutely fearless. Yeah. They clutched yeah. each other to death or killed each other off. Yeah. Without any fear at all. Okay, so that means that the fear actually is a valuable mechanism. This kept you alive. Right. Well, I mean, it's pointing at something, like generally. It, we may not always be seeing things clearly, but when it's operating appropriately. When we do say things clearly, then with wisdom, we can discern with a wisdom eye or a wisdom mind 
what in fact is dangerous in this present moment or not to where this self-preservation instinct is an old, old mechanism that has been pre-programmed literally hundreds of thousands of years ago. But with that said, is the goal to become fearless or is the goal to recognize the fear and be okay with it? Or are they the same thing? They're the same thing, basically. Okay. They're the same thing. Uh, because the fearlessness is basically that we have to get rid of is the, is the things that we're afraid of that are about to happen, but haven't happened yet. For instance, if, if a criminal puts a gun in your face, cocks a hammer and says, if you don't tell me where that jewelry is, I'm going to blow your head off right in right now. Okay. Right. He's trying to make you afraid. Yeah. By threatening your life. But in fact, he hasn't shot you yet. You're not dead yet. Right. You're still alive. So this is just a threat. Now we have to use the wisdom eye to begin to figure out, is this a real threat or is this an idle threat? That more in some cases, you're going to die anyway, whether you tell him where the goods are or not. Then, in fact, he's only going to keep you alive long enough to find out where those goods are, and then he's going to kill you anyway. Right. Or he may not intend to kill you at all. He just really wants that stuff really badly. And you, with wisdom eye, if you're looking, paying attention to what's going on, you can figure those things out, which is what the star of the movie is going to do to where everybody else is going to be victim to this. Right. And he's not going to be able to figure out what's going on. And so he's going to either spill the beans and die or spill the beans when he and, and live when he didn't have to spill the beans at all. Well, yeah, I mean, if the mind is calm in that situation and you can objectively look at it, then yes, you could be, would be able to determine that. I think for most people, their mind's not calm. It panics. Exactly. Exactly. Why did it panic? It's because of the fear. The fear is what causes the panic. The fear is, in fact, is what causes all of the adrenaline, all the cortisol. It changes the whole body chemistry to get ready for fight or flight. Well, guess what? In this case, you're not going to flight and you're not going to fight. Right. But all of your body chemistry and all the blood is designed for fighting and flighting and thinking is out the window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That when we are angry or when we're upset or full of fear, uh, we can't think straight. And this yeah. is well, well known. Oh, I get it. All, all, over, all over the place. I can give you dozens and no, dozens I, of examples. Well, I have plenty of personal experience with getting angry and having to step away for a moment and calm down before I can see things clearly. So I get it. Yeah. Okay. So that's the whole point. If we can train the mind then to stay calm and not react to the anger, we not react to the fear. In fact, that uh, anger doesn't exist without fear. Because actually anger is... Um, is that which brings the power to make us feel that we can handle the situation because ultimately we're really afraid. So it's an overcompensation? Right. 
Anger is an overcompensation for fear. And it feels delicious because fear itself is powerless. It's a victim's position. But if we can turn that fear into anger, now we feel powerful. We have righteous anger. I'm right. I know what's correct and true. I've never heard it quite put that way, but that is excellent. I agree. That's so good. that's what anger is. Anger is actually the overcompensation of you use the word yourself. How can you say that you never heard it that way before? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I never really knew. I mean, I don't know. It, it makes sense to me. I'm just okay. thinking of my childhood. Like, there was a lot of anger. And that totally makes sense that it was the fear. It was my way of dealing with being afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, you were taught how to do it that way. Yeah, my dad had anger issues. Mm -hmm. Right, and so we'd pick it up. Another thing is, is that even before we're out of diapers, we learned that someone in the family, maybe daddy or mom, one of them, or perhaps both of them, has to go out every day. And they come home tired, and they don't like what they're doing when they're out there, and when they're at home, they complain about what happened when they're out there, and they call it a job, or they call it work. And so right from the very beginning, before we're even out of our diapers, we recognize that, hey, we're going to have to be like daddy. We're going to have to go out and work and do things we don't want to do. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then by the time we're six, they put us to work. Learn your ABCs, clean your room. Yep. Put down that cell phone and do your homework. Yeah. And if you have a sibling, you're asked to be even bigger than you actually are. You're asked to be big when you're actually small. Don't wake the baby. Bring mommy the diaper. Like, and you're mommy's little helper, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Put them to work. Yep, I get it. Mm -hmm. And so we've been put to work, and we don't actually enjoy the work that we're doing because nobody else enjoys it. We don't have a model for people enjoying our work. Though wise people will give that from time to time. Even Einstein will say, uh, if you uh, if you find a job you like, you never work again. <sighs> that sounds so nice. Yeah, and it doesn't exist. No, it's, it doesn't. It's actually, the, if you use the word job and work the way that they're normally used, that's actually a uh, an oxymoron. Yeah. I think... To I have, have a job or work that you like is not work. No, it's work. You, I think there are very to, few people that actually really, really enjoy everything about their jobs. I think there's a lot of people who enjoy parts of their job, but there are parts that they hate. I know right. I'm that way. Uh-huh. You, do you know of uh, Gorilla in the Mist? I have, yeah. I've watched it. Okay. Uh, she loved being with the gorillas. It was her bosses that she had trouble with. <laughs> the real gorillas. <laughs> yeah, I can get that. Politics is nonsense. Okay, so back to the point now. We've covered four items of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view... Right, Sati, to wake up and look at it, because if you don't remember to practice these skills, you're not going to practice them. Right. For that reason, that's the power and the importance of Sati. That's why we want to do it. 
<clears throat> once on the in-breath and once on the out-breath, to really have sati, to know that this is a long, deep in-breath and to know that this is a long, deep out-breath is to develop that sati, to remember, to remember, to remember, to remember. So don't get distracted. Come back and keep remembering, okay? Um, oftentimes the word concentration out of English language is used. But this is not actually concentration because concentration is something that you're doing in this moment. Concentrating, getting tight, strong in this moment. Right. What we're doing here is we're being very easy and relaxed this moment, long, deep in breath. And very relaxed, not concentrating, but remembering and focusing to take a long, deep out breath. And concentration has nothing to do with it. Right. But the word sati is where this word concentration comes from, because that was um, in the misunderstanding of the language in the beginning. And so almost all translations of uh, sama area samati is called right noble concentration. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I apparently am it's, wrong. But it's not. A better way of using the word samati means that it's collected together. Concentration means that you select things out. An example right. of that would be frozen concentrated orange juice. What does frozen concentrated orange juice do? It takes the water out. But nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice, even if you let it thaw out to where it's no longer frozen, but it's still concentrated orange juice. You don't want concentrated orange juice. You want samati orange juice. So you want to put things back together. So it excludes. You want to put the water back in it. So in that case, samati is exactly opposite of the word concentration. So ex concentration would be exclu excludes. Mm -hmm. Whereas this includes. Includes. Okay. Exactly. I get that. An example of that would be that when all of the parts of an automobile come together, then the automobile parts, the engine, the wheels, the transmission, the axles, the body, the frame, when all of that stuff comes together, then it becomes a system. And in general systems theory, the point is that things are greater. The system is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the sum of the parts of an automobile is just automobile parts scattered all over the yard. But the sum of those automobile parts put together in the system, we have an additional feature, transportation. <laughs> okay. Transportation is, is, is something that is bigger than the sum of all of the parts. Right. This is where we're, this is the point of samati going in that direction. Okay. Another example would be a teepee and a, a Western uh, uh, Native American uh, temporary shelter. Right. I got teepee, you. I got right? you. I know. Okay. How is the teepee made? You have uh, long, thin, slender trees, maybe uh, at most three inches in diameter going right. up. But the point is that we want them about 20 feet long, which right. is about five or six meters, maybe seven meters long. Okay. With that, we can then take those and put them at a point and tie them off. 
to give stability so that all of the other uh, uh, poles can be placed around it in a circle and then you can put uh, animal skins and things around it to make the teepee. I get you. But what makes the teepee strong is the fact that all of those poles meet at the top. That's the samati point. Many buildings in Asia are built that way. That's the whole point of an A-frame. Okay. Right? There's the samati point where things come together at an apex. Right. You can call it a gable also. Right. This is what we mean by samati, is when things get together, when they collect together at a unified point. And so we have samati in jhana, and we have samati in the mind. Well, if things are collected at a unified, how, if things are collected at a unified point, is that not concentration? If you want to use the word that way, okay, just go use it that way someplace else. Because here, that gets really confusing. <laughs> I, I know that's why I'm asking. As I, when I've heard of samadhi, I think of Ramana Maharshi sitting in a cave, gone to the world, like in bliss. I. I'm trying to picture it. Um, okay. Th that's why it's important to take it out of m magic, out of the world of magic, and put it into the world of reality. That's why I'm talking about teepees and concentrated orange juice to make it real. Okay. Okay. Because the reality is, is that we do want to have a, a unified, organized mind. And that in fact, Right view, right noble view, right noble sati, waking up, right noble effort, and right noble attitude come together to bring about a unified mind. This is the part of the Eightfold Noble Path that many people don't understand without reading the suttas very carefully. Okay. Okay. But then we recognize that uh, sila, for the noble, is not a causative action, it's a resultant action. To where Buddhism is taught by for children, or is taught in the beginning of the triple gem and the five precepts, right? Mm -hmm. The five precepts have to do with right noble uh, action, right noble speech, and right noble livelihood, right? But we can practice that when the mind is still ordinary, we can practice sila when the mind is ordinary as a way of actually training the mind to begin to see danger. Oh, it's dangerous to kill someone. Therefore, I shall refrain from killing someone. Okay. Or it's dangerous to rob someone on the street. Therefore, I will refrain from robbing people on the street. So that's the ordinary way of looking at it. But the noble way of looking at it is once the, no, the mind is noble, that means that we've already got everything collected together. We're complete. We're whole. We're unified. We're not missing anything. Therefore, there is nothing that I want to make me more complete, which means I don't want anything. I'm good right now. If I've got everything I need right now and I'm good to go right now, and I don't want anything right now, then I am free from doing the things that would get me the things that I want. Right. Because I don't want anything. This is the noble way of looking at right speech, 
right action and right livelihood is coming from the position you're already satisfied. Right. To where the uh, the mundane is, is that we get gratification in what we want. And so we want to get it in order to get the gratification, but we don't see the danger. And I get it. Because it. we don't see the danger, we are stuck in the gratification. If yeah. we can see the danger, then we can see the um, escape. If we can see the danger, then we can say, wait a minute, I want out of this. But right. if we don't see the danger, then we're, uh, we continue to attach to it. So there's waking up all along the way, waking up in the mundane, but eventually we wake up all together to the point of, Hey, I don't need anything. I'm already good. No, I, I anything at all is dangerous. That, that state is possible. That you can literally draw everything you need from within. In this present moment. Yes. You can do that right now. Yeah. No, I know. I, I, I have some experience with that. It just doesn't happen okay. all the time. Okay. So you get that. If we can do it in this present moment, then you can do it in the next present moment. And then you begin to develop the right attitude. I can do this anytime. Any next present, uh, present moment, I've got the skills, I can handle that. I can do it one time. If I can get to the point that I'm good to go right now and I'm completely satisfied with everything right now, then I can do that again right. and again. And again, and so the first skill that we have to do is the uh, or the first big skill, let's say, is the skill of getting ourselves into that state. And that state would be a state of freedom from suffering, sukha. Sukha. Sukha, which is, in fact, safe, no fear, secure, no dangers, content, got enough satisfied and then along comes that next one right noble attitude and that's when we uh, bring in the final additional quality of success success job well done did it did it then do it now can do it next time too right attitude Okay. So, we actually develop Anapanasati. Anapanasati is the technique of developing these skills that are part of the method. And yet many people don't understand that right attitude and right uh, sati and right uh, uh, effort and right view are skills to be developed. But these things are very, very clear when we look at it from the position of Anapanasati. Because the verb on each one of the stage uh, says, the, uh, it says, thus he trains himself. Not a doubt about it. This is a training. This is a skill development. In fact, the, uh, the operative word in Pali that's used all the time. Uh, when I say all the time, I'm talking about with every sutta, at least this word will be one time placed, if not dozens of times. And that's the word bhavana, or bhava, which means the development. In, in Paticca Samuppada, it is uh, step number 10. 
development. Okay, we can actually think of it as pregnancy. <laughs> that pregnancy has to happen before birth. Right. You have to develop something. You have to develop the skill. And once the skill is developed, now that skill that skill is is uh, useful. It's born. It's uh, it's there. So the skill development or the training is what Anapanasati is all about. This is why it gets the name practice. What an important word that is. Practice, but meditation, I'm not sure that meditation is the right word at all for this because the word meditation has heavy Christian roots and it has the roots of contemplation. And basically what that means is contemplating the holy like taking the Trinity or taking the, uh, the mercy of uh, the Mother Mary, or there's all kinds of objects of meditation that you can take. And if they're very, very lucky, that will actually help focus the mind because they actually are contemplating that and they're not having a mind full of unwholesome stuff. But they don't recognize that the whole training here is to keep the mind out of the unwholesome. So when they finish the meditation of thinking about the uh, the grace of Mother Mary, when they go out in the world, Mother Mary and her grace are gone with all this anger and frustration that, that occurs because they're not actually training right. to get the mind into the position that it can handle that present moment out in the world. Yeah. So this is not meditation that we're doing. This is training. This is like practicing the piano. I get you. There's skills that you're building. It's a skill to be developed. Okay, fair enough. Okay, and so in Anapanasati, there's these various points, and we can take it in order and miss the whole point because there is a natural order of this awakening. For instance, sati comes first. If you don't remember to practice skill, you can't practice it. And if you practice this skill, it will lead then to the practice of that skill. If you try to practice that skill, you'll fail. You need to practice this skill before you can do that skill. An example of that is fingering. You have to learn to practice fingering on the piano. So that you, they, how do they do that? They practice scales. But in the practice of the scales, there's thumb, index, middle finger, followed by thumb, index, middle finger, and then you can play the scale that way. Is da 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 da, and that's just how you do it. If you don't practice that, you can't play music. You have to practice scales. Right. Okay. That's the point then, is, is that these, some of these skills have to be done in order to practice other skills. So we can look at it from that perspective then, is the skills, the order of the skill development is the way that we should look at Anapanasati. Okay, so the first skill is sati, to wake up, and then to take a look at what's going on. This is basically then step nine of Anapanasati, is that wake up and take a look, investigate the mind, and then the next thing is to change the content of the mind with one's right effort to take out the unwholesome and put in the wholesome. This is an Anapanasati called gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. Okay. Okay. And this is step 10 of Anapanasati. And the way that I use it or talk to students about it is by saying it like this. And that is that you have spent your whole life 
talking yourself into feeling bad. Unwholesome thoughts give rise to unwholesome feelings. Now is the time for you to talk yourself into feeling good. Wholesome thoughts will gender wholesome feelings. Yep. So the first thing we do is, is that we start changing the thoughts. Sama Sankapo. By changing those thoughts, we also begin to change the attitude because the, the thought is the voice of the attitude. Yep. Okay. So if we start to develop gladdening the mind and brightening the mind, then eventually the attitude will become more naturally changing. So we can think of uh, Sama Sankapa is both right thought and also right um, attitude. But the attitude is a deeper thing than just the thought that we have. Right, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned trash thoughts earlier. Mm -hmm. um, let's say hypothetically speaking, trash thoughts arise, you notice them, uh, you remember to notice. Mm -hmm. um, should there be a shifting of the mind to a wholesome thought? Like, yeah, and the first way of doing that would be, aha, uh -huh, I see that's a junk thought. Right. Or something like that. Let's say that you're on the way to work, driving your car, and on the way to work, you're thinking about the work. Right. That's the junk thought right there. While you're driving to work, you're thinking about work. And in fact, you're not at work when you're driving the car to work. You're driving the car to work. If you pay attention to what you're doing with the car, you'll probably make it to work. But a lot of people who are thinking about work while they're driving the car won't make it to work. They'll make it to the hospital instead. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. But why? Or because drive themselves crazy. Or probably, <laughs> right, they might wind up at work and crazy too. <laughs> exactly. So what we're talking about then is, is that we need to be able to focus the mind to come into this present moment because the junk thoughts are going to be thoughts of the future right? or the past. Thoughts about what am I going to do when I get to work? Thoughts about what happened yesterday that gave rise to the work that I'm going to be doing today. So thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future are often the kinds of thoughts that we have with a restless mind because there's not very many now places to go with the restless mind. So the restless mind almost always goes to the past or the future. Well, yeah, because now's boring. I need to no, get my phone now is, now is just now. The I'm, boredom is I'm optional. Being, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I know, I know. Just, <laughs> no, but but it's not the now that's boring. That's it's the, the restlessness. Yeah. That in fact, we when we use the word boring, what we're actually indicating is now is not good enough. Yeah. In that thought, I want something else. And that's the restlessness, that wanting. And so the mind keeps jumping from one junk thought to the next junk thought in a state of desire, in a state of wanting. When we recognize that state of desire and wanting comes from those kinds of thoughts, we can recognize if I change the thoughts that I'm having, the thoughts of everything really is all right, then that's not going to give rise to the desire for the things that I was thinking about when I wanted them. 
if if practiced long enough, this would seem to lead to a quiet mind. Actually, it, you don't. It's not a matter of long enough. It's a matter of doing it right now. If you do this right now, you get a quiet mind right now. It might not last very long, but hey, success is success. Congratulate yourself for doing it right now. I got you. Now you're right. You're 100% right. Well, this is why Western Buddhism has the problem that it does is because the Westerners who see Buddhism, they don't recognize this quality is so powerful. It's so, it's so powerful that that was the name that the Buddha gave himself. He did not call himself Buddha. That didn't come until centuries later. Really? Right. You know what he referred to himself or called himself? The Tathagata. Tathagata. I've heard that word before. You know what it means? No. Not All right. The worst possible translation is thus gone one the blown out one i think that's how i've heard it okay yeah. all right but they're missing the word thus because it's an old english word why um a hundred years ago they were using hundred year old words i don't know but now we've got the word thus that's 200 years old and we don't use it in our language anymore right thus gone one means the one who has come to the present moment. If, in fact, the person who is referring to this is in the present moment, then that guy comes to the present moment. But if we're in the past and in the future, then when he goes to the present moment, he's going someplace that you're not. <laughs> and so that's why they have the thus gone one. He doesn't go, he comes to this present moment. This really is really simple. <laughs> Isn't it though? It's just it really be here now. Be here now, exactly. That's what Ramdas says. Uh, Eckhart Tolle actually has a book called The Power of This Present Moment. And yep. he's been on this present moment. Guess what? Neither one of them were original. This goes right back to the Buddha. This is the teaching of the Buddha to be here in this present moment. Thusness. This is it. This. Not that. That's not awesome. that over there and not that back then. That's such a lovely message. I, I love it. So this is how we're practicing to wake up and to be in this present moment, which means to no longer have thoughts about that, but to have thoughts about this. Right. Because this is what we have that we don't have. So if we are in this and we have thoughts of that, in a way, that's magical thinking. Yep. Whether that is Chicago or whether that is the next future life. Right. Because it doesn't exist here. Because it doesn't exist here now. That this here and now is noble. Right. It's all that's required. And if you just take a deep breath and say, hey, I don't have to think about that anymore. The next my moment will be quiet. Ah, that relaxation is actually a mind moment. To actually relax. No thoughts going on. Just paying attention to. Ah, the mind is quiet. 
for the beginner. You don't need 50 or 70 years of practice. That in fact, the guy who is um, saying that my 50 years of practice means something means that he's been practicing wrongly this whole time. Yeah. Because he keeps expecting something out of it. He keeps improving. No, you can't improve. This present moment is all there is. Yeah. It does not need any improvements. That's extremely common, though, for amongst people. Measuring spiritual attainments and things of that mm -hmm. nature. Attainment is the word for it. Exactly. And they take, and they take Buddhas and they say... Look at all these attainments that Buddhism has. Let me go get some of that. Let's do some capitalism on Buddhism. <laughs> Let's go get something. Right. Let's go rob it. Let's go drain it dry. Get all the good stuff out of it. Then it's mine. Yep. <laughs> and then we got to pull up the ladder because we don't want those people to get any of it. Right, right. Because they're unworthy. They didn't sit mm -hmm. for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> okay, so now we've got the uh, a new way of thinking about how to do Anapanasati. Let's put all of that together then. So the first thing is mindfulness, to wake up. That needs to be fully done, and we'll talk about what full wake up means. Because waking up to the hindrances and then say... Oh, monkey mind, all these hindrances are so much of a problem. That's just more hindrance. Right. Why? Because even that hindrance is hindering you from being joyful. Right. In fact, right then, we're being regretful and remorseful. Right. And we're not. And we're being regretful and remorseful over what we've been doing all along anyway. So now our Buddhist meditation is adding to dukkha, not subtracting from it. Yep. That's very, very typical of Western Buddhism. It's just another scoop of dukkha. Yep. But we have to change that from when we recognize the mind is wandered away, that two things. One is, is that it's just doing what it's always been doing. Congratulations, you just see what it's doing. And that's sati. Congratulate yourself for the fact that you can see the dukkha that you couldn't see before. And that also gladdens and brightens the mind. The Buddha said this in, uh, at a particular place in time that had enormous in, uh, um, impact on his understanding. And we'll talk about that later. But the statement that he made is, Aha! I see you, Mara. And he was talking about the unwholesome thought that was in the mind right then. And he woke up to it and he says, Why am I thinking about that? An example of, why would I be thinking about the buddies that used to hang around and now they're gone because I got fat? That's just dukkha. That's just suffering. I don't need to think about those guys. They're not here. I right. need to think about what the mind is doing. Right. Okay. So, aha, I see you, Myra. That's the thought. But guess what? That thought is a new thought. To be able to have that thought, the thought of the hindrances is gone now. People say, well, how do I change the content of the mind? You can't. Right. Not really. But the mind is very much like a conveyor belt. Right. Right. If the noticing of it can allow it to change. The noticing of it does change it. Yeah. No, I, I know. I get that. I get that. Okay. 
it does change this present moment. And when we have the thought, aha, I see you, Myra, that opens things up immediately to then add wholesome thoughts. In fact, aha, I see you, Myra, is a wholesome thought. Right. Now we can continue wholesome thoughts like, wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. (laughs) At least not for right now. Right. That email can wait. I do not have to think about that. I can be happy right now. The way that we can think of it is, is that if we think of something to do, then we go ahead and do it because it's supposed to be done. It needs to be done, but we do it without any joy. But if we recognize right in that present moment, when we think about that uh, email and we recognize, I don't want to write that email. Then we can say, "Uh uh-huh, I see that thought. I don't want to write the email. Let me get my mind back into a good state. And so I'm going to take a deep breath, have some happy, wholesome thoughts. And next time that email comes up, if I have another bad feeling about it, I can do the same thing again. Well, within a few minutes, maybe an hour or a day later, and I'll have a thought about that email. And I say, well, I can handle that now. I've got enough joy, I can handle that email joyfully. I know I've got it because I can do it now because I've been practicing and I have the right attitude that I can handle that email happily right now. That hits close to home. Procrastination is a huge problem of mine. Well, that's because you know that you'll hate it if you do it. Therefore, you don't want to do it. Sometimes. some Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way of dealing with procrastination is by not dealing with the, the work at all. It's got nothing to do with what you've got to do. It's got to do with how you feel. Right. And if you keep coming back to, I've got to gladden the mind, relax. And as I relax and gladden the mind, this sukha will come on its own because it's being encouraged directly. Encouraged like having thoughts about things are actually safe now. That if I don't do that email, the world's not going to come to an end. I will take the next breath. The cops are not going to come and break the door down because I don't answer that email right now. The guy who I'm writing the email is probably not even going to open it right now if I send it to him right now. Right. And so why should I worry about right now? I don't have to worry about right now. I can be happy right now. Right. And we start practicing that. So we can say, there are, there, there are no gorillas in the room. I'm safe right now. That email, if I don't write it, I'm still safe. I'm safe. And so we look at that. We give us that word. It's safe. And we begin to develop the feeling of being safe because we are wise to the point that we actually are safe. And it's only the false positive of the self-preservation instinct that is telling us that we're not safe because that's its habit. Of going around saying, I'm danger, 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 safe, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger, danger. Okay, that's the yeah. self-preservation mechanism. Exactly. But you, but wisdom, we can take a look around and say, hey, wait a minute, there's no danger here. Right. There's no danger. Oh, isn't that nice? I don't have to go get my weapons and get all dressed for battle. <laughs> yeah. There's no danger. Okay, so this is how we build sukkah, is we talk ourselves into sukkah by saying there's no danger. In fact, everything is really nice right now. My, what a wonderful moment. Everything's going to be all right. 
And so these are the kind of wholesome thoughts that we would have about this present moment. And those wholesome thoughts that gladden the mind will bring about this feeling of sukha. As I said before, we've been spending all these years talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now is the time to talk ourselves into feeling good. Right. <laughs> That's the practice. Once yeah. you keep doing that over and over again, then we add that fourth ingredient, and that fourth ingredient is the sama sankapo, which is the right noble attitude. And in Anapanasati, that's expressed as satisfaction uh, of success. The I can do this, which gives rise to the feeling of the champion, because the champion is going to feel better than the victim or the uh, the one who is lost. Imagine that you had a 15 round title boxing match, uh -huh. and they go for 15 rounds about each other, and then they have nobody gets to knockout. And after 15 rounds, it's uh, um, a judgment call that the judges judge. He won and he lost. Right now, they both go back into their um, uh, uh, dressing rooms or whatever and get a massage. Guess which one feels satisfied that the, that the fight is over? What a relief it is to be finished with that 15-round knockout. They're both going to feel, wow, I'm glad that's over. Right. But the guy who won is going to have something else involved, and that's the satisfaction of the success that he won. And he has the joy that goes along with it. What about pride? Well, let's not work with that too much because that's a, a deeper issue. But in fact, let's use some pride if we want to, to say in the sense of I can do this is part of the attitude. Okay. You, you could say that in pride, pride is the training wheels of the winner. Okay. So that once he learns to ride that winner's bicycle, he doesn't need those training wheels of pride anymore. Right. He doesn't have to prove himself anymore. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So I would say it's okay for you to feel congratulatory to yourself that I can do this. That, in fact, the poly word for this is pity. Now, that's often uh, misunderstood. But a fairly close translation would be joy. But the joy that we're talking about is the joy of success. Right. The joy of having the job well done. The Buddha talks about that. That the job is done. What needed to be done has been done. And there is nothing left to be done right now. Success. I've done the job. What was the job to do? Throw out the hindrances. To get myself back into a state of relaxation and peace. Right. That was the job to be done. To throw out the hindrances, gladden the mind, take a deep breath, energize the body, feel comfortable, safe, secure, satisfied. And then the last cherry on top is success. Ta-da! We got it. Can't do this stuff. <sighs> I, I, yes, and, I agree. I just, that, I see that as dangerous, but. And, and that is a skill to be developed. 
Yeah. If it is done wisely, then it is not dangerous. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I just, the, the pride aspect of it. I'll put that aside for now. We can come back to it. Okay. Um, because, in fact, the pride has ignorance of it. Right. What is that ignorance? The ignorance that I am. Right. I did this. I did this. Let's not work too much about with the I, but go more with the success. I got you. That's, that's fair. That's a good way to approach it in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I, I could see that. So that's now Anapanasati. We now have, in fact, touched on five ingredients of samati. What? Number one is the mind is free from hindrances. The mind no longer has unwholesome thoughts. Because the mind is free from hindrances and have no unwholesome thoughts, that means that now sukha can arise because the dukkha was coming out of unwholesome thoughts. If we have no unwholesome thoughts now, we can relax into a state of well-being. Right. With that, we develop the, uh, the attitude of, I can do this again. Or not necessarily, I can do this again, but this can be good done again. This right. is nice. This can be done over and over again, and that's where the success. Now we've got three. We've got uh, freedom from hindrances. We've got sukha, and we've got pity. These are three items that are in the Anapanasati Sutta as uh, training tools, Tra things to be trained on, but these are also aspects of first jhana the next thing is about the breathing that when we're breathing in long and breathing out long with sati and mindful of it then the mind is energized oxygenated free from pollution and because of that we can in fact focus the mind and put it to work we can actually apply the mind to something that's wholesome and right. then the last final ingredient to be uh, a skill to be developed is to be able to sustain that. So the first thing, the first skill is to get ourselves into this state. And then the second uh, skill to be developed is to maintain it. And what are what is it that's being maintained? Freedom from uh, hindrances, sukha, pity. And vichya uh, and vichara, which means the mind can be applied to this, and then it can sustain it. These are the, uh, the, uh, the factors of first jhana. So anapanasati is designed and built around the practice of getting ourselves to a really good, happy state. Not mindless. We can still think, but the thoughts that we're thinking are wholesome thoughts. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's the way to walk around and live your life. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Might as well be happy. <laughs> and when you're and when you're not in that state, remember to get into it, and then remember to stay in it for a while. And then something else will knock you out of it, and the hindrances will come back. Never mind, start again. Yep, I can do that. Because if the hindrances come back, and we say, "Oh no, those darn hindrances are back!" Oh, poor me. And we can have a pity party. We can have a full-blown pity party about meditation now. <laughs> yep. Oh, woe is me. I can't do it. Oh, I can't do it. All oh, meditation is so hard. Oh, I might as well just give up. Might as well. A lot of people do. 
others will have the thought, oh, well, I need this stuff for meditation, even though it's so hard. Let me really, really work on it. After all, we need concentration, don't we? Right. So let me concentrate hard enough. And they don't even recognize that by doing that, they're still in hindrance. Right. I get it. Great. It's simple. It's super simple. It is. It is, David. All you have to do now is remember. Right. To and, that's the, and that's the trick, is to remember. Because mm -hmm. you, get, you get stuck. Well, if I'm describing what sometimes can happen to me, I can get, you get caught up in the flow of, of phenomena. Um, especially we can use the word buttons, triggers, and anchors. Yeah. All three will describe what we're talking about. In the in the 1970s, we talked about pushing your buttons. Yeah, I, I remember many many years. I went with, uh, you can't push my buttons because you don't know where they are. Only my mommy can press my buttons. Fair. Okay. So, uh, that's the same thing as triggered. People get triggered. Some event will happen, and they will become attached to it. That's the same thing as having their buttons pushed. Right. Or the other way of talking about it is, is that those things anchor us back. It brings us to this point and we are stuck there because the anchor is set. Right. We have to weigh yeah. anchor. I have some of those. I'm aware of some of them. I'm sure there are ones mm -hmm. I'm not aware of. Well, um, this is actually then the place to practice Anapanasati is when the hindrances are most likely to occur. But wait a minute. If that's the case, then the beginner is most likely going to get overwhelmed because we've got so many buttons, so many triggers, and so many anchors that they keep coming and coming and coming. So in the beginning, we need to isolate ourselves from as many of the uh, anchors and buttons as we can. That's why the meditator will go into seclusion gotcha. to get away from the world because it's the world that uh, uh, keeps pressing the buttons that we have. Right. And so we can get away and have no buttons being pushed from the world. And then we recognize, wait a minute, there's something else in there that keeps pushing these buttons. What are they? There's those unwholesome thoughts right. that keep pushing those buttons. Yep. And so now we have to remove not just the outside world and be secluded from that. We also need to be secluded from the hindrances, the internal button pushers. Okay. And when we practice that, we begin then to soften the world's buttons so that the world can't yes. push the buttons so much anymore because we're not pushing them on the inside so much. We're not reinforcing that. And so yeah. those buttons then become weak. Sometimes they have to be pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed before finally the, the circuit is done. You've seen that on keyboard. Sometimes you press that A. I mean, you're typing along and you look back and, hey, wait a minute, I didn't push that A key because it didn't show up on the text. Yeah. Right? Okay. Those are the kinds of things. Now, the buttons, even though they get pushed, nothing happens. Right. Because it's just immediately seen through. Because we can see through them immediately. And eventually, they don't have the power that they used to have. For you, is it just instant? 
nothing is ever instant. Not. Everything is a process. And every every little piece and instant of that process is happening right here in this moment. Fair enough. So this moment is all that matters. Fair enough. You're right. Well, that's the teaching of the Buddha. It's not me. I didn't figure that stuff out. I'm too stupid to have figured that out. That's why we all pay homage to the Buddha. <laughs> why did he figure out something that was really hard and complex and people don't get it often? Right. But that's the only thing that he had, was that he figured out something that nobody else at that time could figure out. Right. But once he figures it out and tells other people, they can apply that and figure it out for themselves, and you've got a whole bunch of nobles running around. <laughs> world will be a happier place, that's for certain. Well, it's, I mean, the world is a happy place now. I've got no beef with it. You have a beef with it. You may not. I and I may not, but there are a lot of people who do. Well, that's their problem. I know. It's not your problem. Doesn't feel like it though. <laughs> well, that's because they keep pushing your button. What? I mean, I'm allowed to have some compassion, right? Like some empathy for. Oh gosh, we could talk another hour about what is compassion, but let me give you the short version. Just because somebody, uh, let's say you're out on a ship. A boat, a smaller boat, a big fishing boat, maybe a, a 75 footer, something like that, 100 foot long boat, big boat. Right. Somebody goes overboard and they're floundering in the water. They can't swim. And you are the only one who can see them and you can see that they can't swim. And you can't swim either. But the only thing that you can do is just jump in the water with them. That's compassion. Two swimmers <laughs> who can't swim. That is, but that's a terrible example. Like, <laughs> but I guess that's true, though, isn't it? Like, yeah, I'm having a pity party. Come join me in my pity party, and we'll both call it compassion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at a high real level. compassion, real medita is when the guy on the boat who recognizes that his friend out there is drowning because he can't swim and I can't swim either, let's use some wisdom about that and let's look for a life uh, preserver, one of those old rings with a rope on it, and we'll throw that out there to him and let him grab hold of that thing. Well, you said the and only choice was to jump him in. after him. Now, Pardon? You, you said the only choice was to jump him after him. You didn't well, that's the other... only choice for the ignorant one, the one who was not thinking, the one who was compassionate. I see. Talking. But, but the noble <laughs> is not going to jump in. Right. He's going to maintain his joy. He can recognize how bad that person is suffering, but then with that compassion, he's going to use mudita and help cheer them up. You're going to give them some Dhamma, give them to laugh, get them to come out of their misery party that they probably created for themselves. Right. It's not that they fell overboard, they jumped. Right. No, yeah. <laughs> oh. it's, it sucks, but people are choosing it. Well, we were taught to choose it. Yeah. 
We don't know older people don't know when any, we were young. Yeah, we don't know any different. And that's the part that... This is what Buddha is all about with ignorance. That we learn to follow orders and do the rules and take up all of that structure when we're kids or too ignorant to figure out that, hey, wait a minute, a bunch of the stuff that they're handing us is a bunch of crap. Very, very rarely does a three-year-old who is being taken to church day after day, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, to the Baptist church, very rarely does a three-year-old wake up and says, this is a bunch of crap. Yeah. It generally takes them older. Some people never wake up. Some wake up at the age of 40. Some wake up at the age of 20. Some of them wake up at 14. I read a lot of people who wake at about 10 or 12. Yeah, I was about six or seven when I said this is bull. Uh-huh. But before that, you bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And you can recognize a whole lot of other people. They keep jumping in that, jumping out of the boat. Now, I know I bought it because I still have a lot of fear of death because of that shit. Because of Baptist. Because of fire and brimstone. Like, but that's a whole other thing. Well, I tell you what. We've been going on for a while, and I got somebody waiting, so we'll end this with a joke. All right. And the joke is, is that a Christian and a atheist were having an argument out on the street and the Buddhist walks by just at the point when they're discussing hell. And the atheist says, there ain't no hell. And the Christian says, the hell there ain't. And the Buddhist, he smiles and he mentions to them both, hey guys, hell, you're both in it right now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I will use that one. Uh-huh. Hell, you're both in it right now. That's what hell is. Hell is, in fact, not a place to go, that you go to after you're dead. Is in the mind of the child. Right. Heaven and it hell. is hell. Whenever you're thinking about hell and, and being afraid of going there, you're in hell. Right. It exists here and now, like everything else. Inside the mind. It's an unwholesome thought. Well, and if you throw hell out, what have you got left? Peace. Happiness. Heaven. Yeah. The real thing. Well, Not the stuff that the Christians talk about. They actually want to keep you working. That's the latest thing that I've seen now, is some preacher has said that... Uh, uh, that there's that, there, that you'll enjoy your work in heaven because there is no government regulations. <laughs> you gotta love that level of ignorance, like <laughs> it, it's astounding. Like it is so astounding. Oh Lord! But um, I gotta work in the morning, Armando. It's, it's pretty late for me here, but I very okay. much appreciate your time. Um, and I will be, be in touch again. I think you told me to call twice a week, so I'll be trying to do that from now on. Okay. Well, we'll see you. Bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye.